One of the things that we continue to see in Ezra and Nehemiah was that the people were constantly having to be led into a, um, a place to where they were just encouraged to follow the Lord, to follow through. They, would, uh, they were so easily discouraged and they so easily quit the work along the way. And so one of the things that we continue to see is that there was always a revival taking place. And he would get them to a place where they were following God and then we would see they would slack off and they would fall back into old sins. And we see this pattern of, um, of great revival, but then falling into sin and then falling into a place to where um, they were so far away from God that it looked like they had never even been in revival before. And you know, this is what I believe is a pattern with a lot of our lives as well, if you really think about it. If you look at your life, I'm sure you can see times to where you were so close to God. And then the next thing you know, you don't know what happened, but you're so far away from Him, you don't even know if you know Him. And so, I know that there are so many great lessons to learn from this, but the beautiful thing about this is that we also see a pattern of them being brought back to God by His Word. And we see this pattern of them confessing their sin. And we see them uh, pleading with God for mercy. And we're seeing them being brought back to God. And so it's just beautiful to me to be able to see this roller coaster ride in this old covenant because I can relate to that in my life. Anybody else, can you relate to that? And so... I know that there's a lot to be able to learn from that, but one of, some of the things that we saw in this is like in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, the people actually sign a sealed covenant with God. They actually tell God that we're going to follow you and we're not going to neglect the house of the Lord and we're going to make this firm covenant and we're going to put it in writing. And we're going to write our names of our princes and our Levites and, 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 and that's pretty important, right? Because if you make God a promise, you are to keep it. Amen? But as we know when we read through it, they didn't keep it. They fell back into it. Another thing, in Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 39, they made a promise to God that they would not neglect the house of the Lord. Look what it says right here. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. And look at the bottom. We will not neglect the house of our God. And so they're making all these promises. Another thing in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 44 through 47, and I'm not going to read all that for sake of time, but we see that they're bringing the tithes and the first fruits, and the temple is being restored, and the workers are being put into place. And I mean, everything is in order, and everything looks great. And then after 12 years of rebuilding... Twelve years of rebuilding, twelve years of revival, Nehemiah has to leave. And Nehemiah has to go back to Persia. And this is pretty sad because when Nehemiah leaves, we don't know for how long he goes. But for however long he's gone to Persia, everything, all these promises they made, it just goes completely downhill. And then now they're right back to where they started. They're not following the Lord and... And this is just, just a sad place to see because they were on such a high and they were in such a good place. And then next thing you know, they're so far away from God, they don't even know how they get there. And this is one of the things that we see that's a pattern that's repeated in the Old Testament. You remember um, whenever they came out of Egypt into the wilderness and Moses is their leader, he's led them all this way, but now Moses has to go up on Mount Sinai. You remember that? And when the leader leaves, what happens when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai? They go build a golden calf. They start worshiping. They go right back to where they were. Another thing is whenever you look at the Judges and you read the book of the Judges, it says things like, when this person died, then everybody went back to doing what was right in their own eyes. And everybody, and then you see this pattern of God redeems them, God saves them, God brings them to this place to where they're delivered and they're on the high. And then the next thing you know, the leader leaves and they're back down at the bottom again. And so as long as there was a leader in place in the old covenant, it seems like that that leader was able to at least help guide them along the way so they didn't just fall completely away. But Nehemiah, he ends this thing in Nehemiah chapter 13 on a bad note. And if you read the entire chapter of, of chapter 13, you're going to see that basically they neglect the house of God, which they promised they wouldn't do. 
So the house of God gets completely neglected. Uh, they quit putting the tithes and the offerings in the storehouse anymore. The workers, the Levites, the priests, everybody has to go back to their fields to work. The high priest moves the enemy into the house of God to live in the temple. And so, I mean, everything just literally just goes to the bottom of the bottom. And Nehemiah, the only thing he does is he comes in and he tries everything. When he gets back from Persia, he comes in and he sees how things are and he says, God, I did this and I did this and I did this. And three times through Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah says to God, God, please just remember me for all the good that I've tried to do. God, please, I've done this and I've done this. Please don't forget my good deeds and everything that I've tried to do. And so it really leaves us in a sad place because we look at it and we go, man, is there any hope for mankind? Is there any hope that somebody like me can be faithful to God and follow God? And so today, I want to be able to learn from the examples that we see in this book, but then I also want to be able to see that the only way to follow God is that His leader is constantly leading your life. And the good thing about the New Covenant today is that in the New Covenant, His leader never leaves. In the Old Covenant, God spoke to all of His people through prophets and through priests, and He was always leading them. But when the leader stepped away, and God's presence was with them, His Spirit was with them, among them, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, in the tabernacle. But in the New Covenant, the Bible says that God's Spirit indwells us. That literally, He is living with us constantly and He is always leading us and guiding us and, and helping us learn along the way. And so we're going to be able to see that today. The first thing I want you to know in Nehemiah chapter 13, look at verse 1 through 3 and read it with me. It says here, on, the day, on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now here's what I want you to realize in this. They're reading the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. They're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they come to the place to where they understand that the foreigners that are among them, God had actually said, they have no place with you because when you tried to get to the promised land and go through their land, instead of them welcoming you and helping you through, they hired one of your own prophets to curse you. And yet God, when that prophet tried to curse them, God turned it into a blessing so that every time Balaam tried to curse them, he couldn't because it turned into a blessing for them. And now they're reading the law and they're seeing that they have fallen back into an old sin again and they're mixing with unbelievers, with people that, that do not follow the same God that they follow. And now what we're seeing is that no matter how many times these people heard the law, because if you've been through, with me through this entire series of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll remember that in Ezra and Nehemiah, they were always reading the law. As a matter of fact, do you remember how long their worship services were when they read the law? Six hours, twelve hours. You remember you said you thought my sermons were long. Six hours or twelve hours at a time. They're reading from the law. And the first thing that we notice from this is that here they are reading from the law again. And yet when we go through chapter 13, what do we see? That no matter how much they read from the law, the law alone was unable to do what they needed done in their lives. The law of God was actually not able to make them follow God. As a matter of fact, it did just the opposite. They needed to be saved from their sin. And instead, the law didn't save them from their sin. The law revealed just how much sinners they were. Let me show you an example of it. In uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 7, look at what the Apostle Paul says here. What then shall we say, brethren, that the law is sin? 
By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see what Paul's saying? You don't even know. Sin dwells within you, okay? You are born with it. You are born with a natural inclination to to rebel against God and His ways. No way around it. And yet, the way that God reveals to you that you are a sinner against Him is through His law. Whenever you see His law and you hear, Thou shalt not lie. All you can do is look at yourself and go, "Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. You hear, Thou shalt not covet. And all you can do is look at yourself and say, "Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And so the law can only show you your sin. It cannot save you from it. It cannot make you not do those things. Matter of fact, it is in here, next it says, that the law comes in so that the transgression would increase. Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 20 at what the Apostle Paul says here. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, you need to be able to see just how exceedingly sinful you are. Because the truth of the matter is, we look at our lives and we think to ourselves, we're not really that bad of a person. As a matter of fact, when we used to go out, we did a lot of street evangelism. Uh, We don't do as much of it anymore like we used to, but we used to do a lot of street evangelism. And one of the questions we would ask people is, do you consider yourself to be a good person? And what do you think 99% of the people would answer that question? How would they answer it? Do you consider yourself to be a good person? Yes. And then you say to them, well, do you mind if I ask you a few questions to see if God would agree with you? And you start with just a few questions as simple as, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, yeah. Okay. Have you ever took anything that don't belong to you, irrelevant of its value? Yeah. Have you ever used God's name without reason, without purpose, or used it in a, in a, um, a way that is demeaning? Yeah, yeah, I have. Well, have you ever looked upon a a person of another human being with lust in your heart? Yeah, yeah, I've done that too. Okay, then by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, blaspheming adulterer at heart. Do you still think you're a good person? So what did the law do for that person? The law caused the, the trespass to increase. They were able to look at the law of God and they were, be able, they were able to say, I am a sinner against God. And then the law actually tells us what the payment for that sin is. It is death. And so the law is unable. Here's what I'm trying to get at with you. If all you ever do is come into the church and sit and listen to the Word of God, that cannot save you. Now that is how faith comes. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. But just coming and just sitting and just hearing the law and saying, okay, well, I'm going to be a better person. I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm not going to steal anymore. I'm not going to look at other human beings and lust after them anymore. I'm not going to do any of those things anymore. Is that enough to make you follow God? No, because all it does is show you that I do do all these things. All it does is cause it to rise up in you. See, the problem is that we we have a a heart issue. We have a mind issue. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 23 and read through verse 28. And look what it says here. It says, We have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Here's the point. Instead of worshiping the immortal glorious God, we exchanged that and said we would rather have the creation. We would rather have the things that are immortal. We would rather have the things that just simply reflect His glory in a cursed manner. We would rather have that than you. And that's the way you and I live, right? Our lives are usually all about this creation. And so because we did not want God in our hearts, look what happened. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. 
God gave you up to be able to say, okay, if you want the creation, go ahead. You can have it. And he says, He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So we have a heart problem. Do you see that? We have a heart that does not want God. We would rather exchange God for His creation. And then it says here that He gave them up to dishonor their bodies among themselves. This is one way that it revealed itself. And He did it because they exchanged the truth about God. What was the truth about God? That He was glorious, that He was immortal, that He was worthy of worship. We exchange that truth for a lie. What is the lie? The lie is that the creation that He has is more worthy of worship. The creation that He give us is greater than He is. And He says we exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And look what the result was. We worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So again, think about the problem here. The problem is you have an impure heart. You have a heart that don't want God. The problem is you have passions that are dishonorable. They don't honor God. They are impure. And because of that, one of the ways that it reveals itself, their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So one of the ways we see that is in homosexual relationships. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... Again, do you see the problem? We have impure hearts, we have dishonorable passions, and we do not want to acknowledge God. God is speaking to us. God is telling us what His will is. And we look at Him and say, We don't want you. We want to do what we want to do. Because of that, God gave them up to a what? So here's the problem. Your mind needs to be changed. Your heart needs to be changed. The law cannot do that. The only thing the law and the Word of God can do in and of itself is show you that you are these things. And so he says here, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And you could read the list of those things if you were to keep on going. I'm not going to do that this morning. But the point is this. The law alone, no matter how many times these people heard it, no matter how many hours of services they sit through, no matter how many great leaders they had to read them the law and teach them the law, the law alone could not make them follow God. They needed something more. And you and I need something more too. The Bible actually says in Romans chapter 7, verse 5 through 8, that the law actually comes in to stir up the flesh to more rebellion. Look what he says right here. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions... Remember I said we have passions, impure hearts. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now think about that for just a second before I keep reading. One of the ways that you see this in its most natural form is in little children. If we had a little toddler that was walking by this plug over here on the side of the wall, and we were to look over there at that toddler and say, Hey, uh-uh, uh-uh, don't touch that. How many of them are going to turn back and look at you and go, Y'all know I'm telling the truth, right? Why is that? Because there is sin that lies in us. How do, how do we know it's there? When the law comes in and says, uh-uh, don't do that, that's when sin is aroused. It's aroused and it says, but I want to do that. And I don't like that you tell me what to do. And how many of you know that that's in your heart? That's in your heart. 
And so sin arouses the law. Look at what he says in verse 6 next. But now we are released from the law. Why? Because these people aren't living in the flesh anymore. When we were living in the flesh, that's the way it was. But now that we have a new leader, the Spirit of God, now that the Spirit has come in and give us minds to learn and want to follow Jesus, now that the Spirit has come in and changed my heart and said, Jesus, I want to follow You. We're no longer living in the flesh, hopefully, if we don't walk in it. And he says here, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Why? Because Jesus paid for it. He nailed it to the cross. And then it says here, so that we serve in a new way. A new way of the Spirit. Not in the old way of the written code. Because the only thing the written code could do was stir up my sin and show me my sin. Is this making sense? Alright, let's keep going. Verse 7. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? Because if all it does is arouse my, my sin in my life, if all it does is show me my sin, then is it really good for me? He says, what shall we say? Is it sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. That's why it's good. Because I need the Word of God. I need to hear the law. Because it's what shows me that I'm a sinner. It's what shows me that I'm a rebel against God. And he says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But then finally in verse 8, look what he says. But... Sin. So the law is not bad. It's sin that's in me that's bad. And sin seized an opportunity through the commandment. When the commandment said, Thou shalt not covet, guess what rose up in you? Sin. The rebellion rose up in you. That impure heart, that dishonorable mind, that debased mind, that impure passions. And that is what is in your flesh, and that is all that is in your flesh. The Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul says, there is none good, no, not not one. We all have sin. And the law, as good as it is, it cannot make you follow God. It cannot lead you in the ways of God alone. You have to have a power that changes your mind, a power that changes your heart. The Bible says you must be born again. In John, uh, I'm not going to go there yet. We'll go there here in just a minute. Go down there to my, to my next one. Point number two. <clears throat> man can't save you and man can't change you. Read with me verse 4 through 14 of Nehemiah 13. Now before this, Elishab the priest, and he's the high priest, okay? He's the main guy. When Nehemiah left to go back to Persia, this guy should have been the one that continued to lead the people. But instead, he was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God. He was related to Tobiah. And you remember when we studied Ezra and Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobiah were the two main enemies of the Jews, right? They were the two main guys that were trying to stop the work. And they accomplished it several times. And in the process of this, when Nehemiah leaves, what does the high priest do? He moves the enemy into the church of God. And how many times does that happen in our churches today? Not because of God, but because of man. Because of bad leaders because of bad pastors, because of bad teachers. And they allow the enemy to come right into the house of God and set up camp. And that's what happens right here. Keep reading with me. <clears throat> he was related to Tobiah, and he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, the wine and the oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So let me ask you a question. What do you think's fixing to happen whenever they move out all of the tithes and the offerings that supported the workers of the temple, and they move in the enemy with all of his things? What are the workers fixing to do? They're fixing to go back home. 
And so the house of God literally becomes null and void. It doesn't help. Alright, keep reading with me. In verse 6, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked the leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So for 12 years, Nehemiah works on revival in a church. Can you imagine this? 12 years, Nehemiah works on revival in a church. And then he leaves for we don't know how long, at least a year I'm going to say, because it was a four-month journey, I believe, one way there and one way back. So he's gone for at least a year. And then when he gets back, that entire revival that he led, it has completely went down to where nobody is following the Lord. The church of God is empty and the enemy has moved in. What do you think Nehemiah is going to feel at this time? Well, let's figure it out. Look with me at verse 8. And I was what? Very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out in the chamber. So there they moved all of God's offerings, all of the priests and the Levites' contribution. They moved every bit of it out and moved the enemy in. And when Nehemiah gets back, he is so angry, he starts picking up furniture, he starts, he starts cleaning out the house of God. Kind of a picture of what we see of Jesus doing in the New Testament. You remember that? Now keep reading with me. <clears throat> and then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So this man is doing everything he can to try to turn this thing back around. And I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field, and rightfully so. They can't survive. Verse 11, So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Now remember, before I go much further in this, they made a promise to God that they would not neglect and forsake the house of God, right? And yet what happened? Here we are. Now keep reading. <clears throat> and I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalemiah <clears throat> the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, the son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable. So he's trying to put the best man he can in place. He thought the high priest was that person, but he wasn't. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. And then finally in verse 14, look at how he ends it. Remember me, O God. This is the only way Nehemiah knows how to end it. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for His service. Do you see the downer this leaves? And I mean... This almost leaves you hopeless if it weren't for the fact that there's a new covenant coming. There's a new thing that God is going to do. Not like the way He did it in the old. And this ought to excite you this morning when you hear about this. But the point is this. Man cannot make you follow God. I don't care how much I try. I don't care how, mu how good I teach the law. I don't care how good the man is that you have in place. Man cannot make you follow God. So if the law can't make you follow God, if, la if, the, if a man can't make you follow God, what's it going to take for you to follow God? We're going to keep going. <clears throat> now, number three. Your best efforts and your dedication can't make you follow God. Your best efforts, you say, God, I'm going to do this. How many times have, been, have we got anybody in here that's ever rededicated four, five, ten, twenty times? God, I'm going to rededicate my life to you. God, didn't you dedicate it the first time? I mean, I'm not demeaning you because I get it. I've done it too. You understand what I'm saying? I'm, not say, I'm just saying it is kind of funny because... It seems like to me that if I dedicated to you the first time, don't it belong to you? 
And now here I am coming back again. I'm rededicating and I'm rededicating and I'm rededicating. No, what I need to do is repent. Repent. I need to turn this thing back around because I've took what belonged to God and I've tried to take it away from Him. And so we're going to see that your best efforts and your dedication can't save you. In 15, verse 15 through 18, look what he says. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain, loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, which they had brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now here's my point. These people had made so many oaths and so many promises that God, we're not going to neglect your house. God, we're going to keep the Sabbath. God, we're going to bring the offerings and the tithes into the storehouse. And we're going to keep the temple service going. We're going to follow you. We're going to be obedient to you. And out of all those promises and all of those dedications, did any of it make them stay faithful to the Lord? Not at all. And yet we think to ourselves that that's what's going to... We just got to make a better effort. We got to try harder. And can I tell you something? No matter how hard you try, you cannot make you follow the Lord. It takes something even greater than your best efforts. And, and we're almost coming to a place that you, you're ready to ask me now, Preacher, is there any hope? And can I tell you in and of yourself and in your flesh, can I answer that for you? No. There is no hope. The truth of the matter is the Bible says your only hope is you must be born again. But one last thing. Go with me to verse 19. I want to do the final one here. Forceful leadership can't save you or change you. Read verse 19 through the end. And as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath. So here's the picture. Nehemiah's had all he could take. He's done destroyed the room in the house of God, tearing it up and making sure that he's trying to get it back in the right place. Now they have forsaken the Sabbath and they're buying and selling and it's just business as usual on the worship day. And then he comes in here and now he decides that the night before the Sabbath, he's going to shut the gates of this place before the Sabbath starts, before it grows dark, and this is what he does in verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now think about what Nehemiah's trying to do here. He's trying to force the people to make sure that they can't, that they can't be unfaithful to God. Do you think he's going to succeed? Keep reading. <clears throat> then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. <laughs> and then look at verse 21. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Now let me tell you something. Nehemiah ain't talking about praying for these people, all right? Nehemiah is actually the governor. And when Nehemiah says, I'm going to lay hands on you, he's literally saying, I'm going to have you killed. I'm going to go as far as to putting a death sentence on you if you do not stop breaking the Sabbath. He's trying everything he can. Keep going with me. <clears throat> then I commanded the Levites, that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath holy. You see everything he's trying to do. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. 
You hear the way in chapter 13, this pattern, Nehemiah comes in, he says, man, I, I threw everything out of the temple and I put everything in place and yet still I know what's going to happen. So God, all I can say is just remember me for my good that I tried to do. And God, I sat on the walls, I put people on the wall, I threatened to kill people. And God, all I can say is just please remember me for the good that I tried to do. And then keep reading in verse 23. And in those days I also saw the Jews who married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of another god. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat them and pulled out their hair. You think I'm rough sometimes? I ain't resorted to this yet. <clears throat> I cursed them, I beat them, I pulled out their hair. I'm telling you, Nehemiah is trying to do everything he can to make people follow God. I'm not going to finish reading the rest of it for sake of time, but I want you to think about this. Have you ever known pastors that they thought the way that they're going to get their people to do right is they're going to force them? I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to whip you with this and this and I'm going to do this. I've known youth pastors that said, I'm going to make you, you sign a contract that says, I will not have sex before I'm married. Now don't get me wrong. I'm thankful for what they're trying to do. But do you think that's going to stop the flesh? No, it's not. We only have one hope. And that is that the gospel changes you from the inside out. You will not be changed from the outside in. The gospel has to come into your life. The Holy Spirit has to come in and give you new life. This is what uh, Jesus told Nicodemus in, in John chapter um, 3, verse 3 through 10. Look what He says in this. Jesus answered Nicodemus and He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... In other words, he has to have a new life. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's important because if you are still flesh, if Ronnie and Letha are dealing... Now again, I'm not saying that they don't go back there and preach that we should be pure until marriage, because they should. But their most important thing is that they're continuously preaching the gospel. That you're a sinner. Thank you, brother. That we are sinners. That there is no hope in and of ourselves. That you cannot follow God unless something changes. And the only hope is that they see that I stand condemned before God. That I stand a sinner before God. And unless God saves me of my condemnation, and unless God changes my heart, and unless God changes my mind, all you're doing is trying to stand up there and force the law on them, which does nothing but arouse the flesh. Right? All you're doing is standing up there and you're trying to force them to do something that their flesh is going to do whether you tell them not to do it or not. And your only hope is that they are born again. And that's the reason why I tell Ronnie and Letha over and over and over again, just keep preaching the gospel. Keep preaching the gospel over and over and over. And then as the gospel changes their heart, they're going to want to know what God's will is for their life. And they're going to be transformed into that. See, we're backwards. We're trying to do like Nehemiah. We're trying to force people that don't have a heart to follow the Lord to follow the Lord. And you might do it for a period of time, but it's not going to be long before we're right back where we started. Look with me. Keep, keep reading this. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we need to be born of the Spirit, right? We need a spirit birth. Do not marvel, Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Listen, see, he knew Nicodemus didn't understand what this meant. 
And he says, let me give you an example. You think about the wind. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it went when it left. But one thing you know, it's been through. How do you know that? You feel the effects of it. You see the effects of the wind. You see what it has done. And the same way with the Spirit. When the Spirit comes through you and you are born again, you are changed. There is something different about me. My mind is different. My heart is different. Now does that mean we're not still fighting with the flesh? Absolutely not. We are still fighting with the flesh. Now the war begins. But you know that it has been there. You know that He has changed me. And He says here, Nicodemus said to them, how can, how can these things be? And go with me to verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? In other words, Nicodemus was a very, very well-known teacher. He didn't say, Are you a teacher, did he? Jesus said, Are you what? The teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things. In other words, the man of the Old Covenant, the man that knew the Old Testament Scripture should have known what this meant. But he didn't. Why? Look with me at Ezekiel um, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 27. Look what the prophet Ezekiel said. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a what? Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't know what we've been telling you is coming? I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit and put it within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh or a soft heart. And look what he says here in the New Covenant. And I will put my Spirit where? Within you. And I will cause you to walk in my ways and to be careful to observe and to obey all my rules. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you the way. This is what you need and this is the only way to stay faithful to God. But let me end with this. You have to choose to walk in the Spirit. He has given you a new heart for Him. He has given you a new mind for Him. He has saved you from all of your sins and now you have to make the decision to go to war with your flesh and follow the new desire that He's given you. A desire to be true to God. A desire to worship God. A desire to put God, the immortal, the all-glorious, above everything else. You have to make a decision to do this. In um, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, look at what Paul said about this. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. By the renewal of what? See, remember, the problem is not your willpower. The problem is your mind. The problem is your heart. God is renewing that. God is changing that. And He says we're going to be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is acceptable, and what is perfect. This is something you have to do. You have to not be conformed to the world anymore like your flesh wants to be, but you have to be transformed because now you have something living inside of you that changes your mind, that changes your heart, that gives you power to follow God. Come on, somebody say Amen. amen. Now let me show you how we do that. How do we renew our minds daily? Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. And we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in what? And what is this knowledge about? The Spirit is teaching us everything we need to know about Jesus and His image and what it looks like to follow God. And we put that on 
day after day after day and we put off the things of the flesh and this is what it means to be born again. You look at your life and you say, Pastor, I don't see that in my life. There may be a problem. There may be a problem. We have to put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. But then we have to learn. Look at John chapter 14 verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will do what? What's His job? His job is to teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said to you. This is the reason why the Bible says we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is what? What's the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. That's His sword. That's what He takes to kill the flesh. Swords ain't for plowing fields, right? Swords are for killing. That Word of God you have in your hand is the Holy Spirit's tool that He takes and His job is to use that and teach you everything that Jesus has said His job is to bring it into your remembrance so that when you're walking in a way that's not according to Christ, the Spirit is eating you alive. The Spirit is striving with you. So you have to learn from the Spirit as He teaches you about Jesus. And then you have to make sure you don't quench the Spirit. You have to make sure you don't grieve the Spirit as He strives with you. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Spirit of God. What does it mean to grieve something? It means to be saddened, right? To feel, to feel a, a great burden within yourself whenever you, you're grieved by something. And he says, don't do that to the Spirit. The Spirit is trying to teach you. The Spirit is trying to guide you. And then you have a choice. Can I walk in the Spirit or can I walk in the flesh? And if you choose to walk in the flesh, guess what you're doing to the Holy Spirit? And so we, again, these are decisions you have to make. You have to say, I am not going to grieve the Spirit of God because God gave Him to me to seal me for the day of redemption. Keep going with me. In um, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. What does it mean to quench something? Let me quench something real quick. I'm all right, buddy. Quench. That means that you are you're, you're you're extinguishing it. You're putting it out. You don't do that to the spirit. You let the spirit teach you. You let the spirit guide you. And if you do this, that's how you follow God. That's how you remain faithful to God. You can't do it by your best efforts and everything. You have to lean on the power of the Spirit. You have to trust the Spirit. You have to learn from the Spirit. You have to be renewed in your mind by the Spirit. Y'all tracking with me this morning? Finally, we must set our minds on the things of the Spirit, not on the things below. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 2. If then you have been raised with Christ. Notice that if. If you have been raised with Christ, then your job is to seek the things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. You want to know why we have such a hard time following the Spirit? Because we're not being filled with the Spirit. Because we're not being renewed in our minds by the things of the Spirit. Because we're not being taught by the sword of the Spirit. Because we're not using the sword of the Spirit to kill the flesh. And because we're not setting our mind on the things above, but we're setting our minds on all of these things here on this earth. And you remember what the disciples said to Jesus? They said, Jesus, how can we make sure we endure to the end? And you remember what Jesus told them? He said, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Don't set your mind on the things that are passing away. Set your mind on the things that you're looking forward to. On the things that you're going after. And if you do these things, that's what it means to walk in the Spirit. And there is no other way to follow God.
the law, the Word of God, my preaching, my forcefulness, none of those, your, your best efforts, your promises, your covenants, you signing pieces of paper, none of that will make you follow God because it can't save you from your sin and it can't change you from your sin. But the Holy Spirit of God, when you hear the gospel and you believe it, when He comes in like the wind and He changes your heart and He changes your mind and He comes to dwell in you, He changes everything. And your job is to walk in the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. When I got done with this message, whenever I, I got done writing it, <clears throat> all I could do was pray. And my prayer was a bunch of I'm sorry's. I said, Lord, I'm sorry for not renewing my mind daily to know Your will. I'm sorry that instead of being transformed, I have been conformed to this world. I'm sorry, Lord, that I have not sought Your will in my life and listened to Your Spirit so that I, am, I know what Your acceptable, perfect will is in my life. I'm sorry, Lord, that I, I'm not learning from the Helper the way that I should. You know, in the Old Covenant, if they didn't have Nehemiah, Ezra, Moses, if they didn't have Solomon or David, or they didn't have um, Samuel or Isaiah or Ezekiel, if they didn't have those guys... They didn't have the same kind of guide you and I have. They, it was different. The Spirit of God dwelt among them. It dwells in us. You and I have a teacher, a helper, someone that literally comes along beside of us and all we have to do is listen and learn and follow Him. And I'm sorry, Lord, that I don't learn from your helper as he teaches me. I'm sorry for quenching and grieving the Spirit, Lord. Because let me tell you something. You want to know why we always keep ending back up in our sins? Even though we have the Holy Spirit, it's because we're grieving Him. It's because we're quenching Him. It's because we're not learning from Him. It's because we're not being renewed in the spirit of our mind. It's because we're not putting off the old and putting on the new and the image of our, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all I could say when I got done with Nehemiah is, God, I'm sorry that I have the new covenant. I'm sorry that I have the Spirit living inside of me. And yet, I still choose to walk in the flesh. I'm sorry that I set my mind on things below instead of things above. I'm sorry, Lord, that I'm more like Lot's wife than I am Lot. And I'm praying that as you hear this message and that we end Nehemiah, you understand that revivals are great. Revivals are great. You saw a bunch of them through Ezra and Nehemiah. But the only true revival that will ever change you is when you walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And I pray that if that's you today, when you read Nehemiah and you see, that's me, that's where I'm at, I pray that you'd ask yourself two questions. The first question, am I born again? Have I seen the effects of the Holy Spirit as I believe the gospel? Has there ever been a time in my life where He changed my mind about following Him? Where He changed my heart about following Him? And if there is and I'm still backslidden, then maybe am I quenching the Spirit? Am I grieving the Spirit? Am I setting my mind on things of the, that are below instead of things above? What is it that I'm not doing? What is it? Maybe it's all of the above. But there ought to be something in this message that you've heard this morning that you ought to be able to look at your life and say, here is something, God, that I've got to confess, that I've got to repent from, and I have got to get back in line with you, following your Spirit, trusting Him, if I'm going to stay faithful to you.